0: So tonight, I'd like you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. The last time we were together, we left off at verse 20. But as I told you at the beginning of last study, I didn't like the fact that we had to split this one up. I would have preferred just to teach for two hours straight and we get in the whole chapter, but that's a little bit longer than we're accustomed to meeting for together So we are splitting it up into two, but tonight I'm going to spend some amount of time sort of going over what we went with last time. We just sort of need to set the scene in our mind. Jesus has just had his final verbal confrontation with the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And as a matter of fact, Matthew chapter 23 was not so much addressed directly to those religious leaders, though it certainly was addressed to them indirectly, but directly it was addressed to the people warning them to stay away from the influence of the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Well, as Jesus gave this very strong denunciation, this criticism of these religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23, that the idea we have as we come into 24 is that Jesus is leaving the temple grounds in a demonstrative way. It's, he, he, he's almost making a show of it. He's turning his back on the temple and he's leaving the institutions of Judaism of his day because the religious leaders, not the temple building itself, of course, but the religious leaders have become so corrupt. And might I just say, as a measure of their corruption, let's not forget that they are rejecting the very Son of God. I mean, the God that they claim to serve, the God they claim to love, the God they claim to obey, that God has come to them in his perfect human representation. And they can't wait to oppose him and eventually kill him. So Jesus turns his back on the temple and it says very plainly here, uh, verse 1 of Matthew chapter 24, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Again, in the original Greek, not myself being a Greek scholar, but knowing how to read those who are Greek scholars, that is very demonstrative. He went out and departed from the temple. And the disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple, perhaps just to sort of change his mood. Maybe they saw that the, the, the tears streaking Jesus' face from when he wept over Jerusalem and mourned over the city that would be conquered and how much he wished to gather them under his wings as a mother bird would gather the, the baby birds under their, under her wings for protection and, and sustenance. Jesus' face still perhaps streaked with the weeping. He, he turns from the temple, he's walking away and, and almost maybe to break or lighten the mood, the disciples call his attention to the beautiful buildings of the temple. Look at the temple! Look at how beautiful these buildings are. Come, come, and just just take a look at them. And then Jesus, in verse 2, gives a remarkable prediction of the destruction of the temple, where he says this, And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I I say to you, Not one stone will be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus, in the strongest and most stark terms, tells them that the temple will be destroyed. And this prediction of Jesus brings up two, perhaps three, it depends on how you divide them, questions from the disciples that we see in verse 3 where it says, Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, there's perhaps three questions there. When will these things be? That's the destruction of the temple. What will be the sign of your coming? That could be a second question. And of the end of the age? Perhaps that's a third question. But, but I think there's very little doubt that in the mind of the disciples, those three or two or however you want to divide it, those multiple questions were really one question. In the minds of the disciples, they could not conceive that the destruction of the temple would mark anything except the end of the age would mark anything other than Jesus returning to this earth in power and glory to demonstrate his reign, his rule over earth. Now, as we know from Jesus' words here and from how history has evolved since, those questions are not answered the same. The temple was destroyed in remarkably literal fulfillment of what Jesus said in verse 2 around the year A.D. 70. And we know as well that Jesus has not yet returned in power and glory, at least not in the way that the New Testament describes that he will. And so, Jesus here is going to answer their question and deal with it beginning at verse 4, where I begin, he, believe he begins to describe the flow of history until his return. L- let me just start reading with very little comment, starting at verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you'll hear of roars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Again, I think it's very clear to me. The the disciples say, What's the sign, Jesus? What's the sign of, of your glorious return, of the end of the age? And at the very beginning, Jesus tells them, These are not the signs. Wars and rumors of wars. uh, False messiahs. Those are not... Look, this isn't the sign. Then he continues on. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. Again, I, I see it fairly clearly here, and I know not everybody sees it this way, but I'll just tell you how I see it. Jesus is saying that these things are not the sign. And it's been common throughout human history. Whenever there's a catastrophe, whenever some locality has a famine or a pestilence, or as we've seen in recent weeks, earthquakes, right? There's a tendency for people to think, the end of the age is upon us. And Jesus is causing No, these things are going to come. Now, If there's any reference to these things being a sign, you can take it to what Jesus says in verse 8, where he describes them as the beginning of sorrows, which literally, he's using a figure of speech that says, these are the beginning of labor pains. And one could make the argument, I think that's a legitimate argument to make, that those, these things in themselves are not the sign. No one particular war, no one particular famine, no one particular earthquake, none of these things are in and of themselves are the sign. Just like labor pains, we could expect that they will get more intense and closer together the closer to the time we come. I, I think that's a very legitimate understanding of this. But again, no particular war family. Jesus was saying, do you want the sign? These things are not the sign. Now verse 9. They'll deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. I think here... Jesus, in these verses, was telling his disciples what they should expect in this period between the time when he leaves this earth at his first coming and until the time when he returns at his second coming. You should expect to be persecuted. You should expect to push the gospel out to the furthest ends of the earth with all your energy, with all your heart. You should expect that there will be problems within the church. What a striking thing. Jesus says, many will hate one another. False prophets will rise up and deceive many. Lawlessness will abound. The love of many will grow cold. Look, Christians just expect this in the world between Jesus' first coming and second coming. And I think Jesus has been all building up until verse 15. Because verse 15, Jesus puts his finger, metaphorically speaking, upon a very specific sign. And he says, This is the sign. Again, I've got to say, in my reading of this chapter, it's really very clear. Jesus said, You want to know a sign? Here's the sign. These other things, not so much so, although you should expect that they will become more intense and more frequent the closer we come to the end. Nevertheless, this is the sign, verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let he, whoever reads, let him understand. Now, I think that the abomination of desolation is the key sign that Jesus points to in this chapter. You want to know what will be the sign of my immediate return, the sign of the end of the age? Jesus says, and I love this, how Jesus, Jesus points up to nothing original, nothing. He says, open up your Bibles to the book of Daniel, and let me show you and remind you of the abomination of desolation. Now, what is the abomination of desolation? Well, it's very interesting, because as I mentioned last time we were together, there are two very different general (laughs) schools of thought in the interpretation of Matthew chapter 24. You have what you might call the historically dominant position, which holds that for the most part, everything or most everything in Matthew chapter 24 was actually fulfilled in AD 70 when the Romans conquered the city. They, They say, look, Jesus is just explaining that. And therefore, they look for the fulfillment of the abomination of desolation in something that happened back in A.D. 70. Let me say, as I repeated to you last time we were together, I'll repeat it again now because I feel very strongly about it. I think you can tell by my voice and the inflection right here I have. I think that that is a completely inadequate interpretation of what the abomination of desolation is. And I'm not going to say it pains me or hurts me, but maybe it surprises me that some men that otherwise I respect them as Bible commentators and teachers hold to this position. When he says right here, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. I think the plain meaning of those words can only mean an idolatrous image which will bring the judgment of God standing in the temple itself. That is what the plain meaning of those words mean. But let's face it, to believe those words is very difficult because to believe those words, you have to say this was not fulfilled in 70 AD. You have to say there will be a rebuilt temple. You have to say there will be a world political, social, cultural, religious leader who will erect some sort of idolatrous image probably of himself in that rebuilt temple and that that will bring on its heels Great tribulation, as Jesus will describe in the following verses. Well, listen, that is my reading of the text. And let me just say, I know it sounds fantastic. I know somebody could read this and say, wait a minute, you want me to believe That before the end of the age, before the glorious return of Jesus, that there will actually be a rebuilt temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and some world political leader will actually set up a statue or image or some kind of idolatrous image to himself and they say, yes, I believe that. And if somebody says, I'm crazy, I would say, I would never believe it except the Bible teaches it. But the Bible says plainly, this will happen and this will be the pivotal sign before the very end. Now, let me just say this. I believe that this understanding and the place of the abomination of desolation in this chapter is so important because this is not by any means the only place in the Bible where the abomination of desolation is mentioned. In many passages having to do with prophecy, having to do with the end of the age, the abomination of desolation is prominent. It is the critical sign mentioned in Matthew 24. It is the warning to flee mentioned in Matthew 24. It is the sign of the consummation of all things mentioned in Daniel 9.27. It is the sign foreshadowed by Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel 11.31. It is the precise marker of days until the end mentioned in Daniel 12.11 it is the revelation of the man of sin mentioned in second Thessalonians chapter 2 and it is the image of the beast mentioned in revelation chapter 13 now with all this attention in the bible focused upon this abomination of desolation and might i say if for no other reason then we should just notice that it says right here in the bible whoever reads let him understand good heavens, ladies and gentlemen, what do we need? Do we need blinking lights going off in our Bible telling us that this is vitally important? Now, by the way, in my Bible, I think I mentioned this last time, but it bears mentioning again. In my Bible, as I read it, I'm reading red letters in verse 15. But when I come to whoever reads, let him understand, it's suddenly in black letters. This is wholly the assumption of the Bible publisher. The Bible publisher is telling us, this is Jesus' words, but then it's Matthew's words that says, whoever reads, let him understand. Now, I fully admit, at the end of it all, it doesn't really matter whether it was Jesus' words or Matthew's words, because they were both divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. But I personally believe that those were Jesus' words, that Jesus said, I'm referring back to Daniel, and whoever reads this, let him understand it. Why shouldn't that be Jesus' words? Why shouldn't Jesus be announcing to the whole world this is an absolutely critical marker because it's so vitally connected with what we call the 70 weeks of Daniel, which is a whole other area of biblical prophecy. But because this abomination desolation is so critically linked with the 70 weeks of Daniel, it is absolutely critical for understanding biblical prophecy. So taking it all together... In the most plain meaning, the abomination of desolation, in my view again there 's Bible teachers I love and respect who disagree with me on this, but it cannot be the Roman armies or the end signs that they marched under. It cannot be totalitarian governments or any other such conjecture. The abomination of desolation must be some kind of image of the antichrist that 's sort of the shorthand word we give through this coming political and social leader, set in an actual temple. And it is the decisive sign for the end. And this tells us something. That for the most part, Jesus' predictions in Matthew chapter 24 have not been fulfilled. Or maybe I should put it this way. That at the very least, the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was a foreshadowing fulfillment. And actually, we have a very firm pattern for just this very thing. You know, when Daniel first mentioned the abomination of desolation, he put it in the context that would make you believe that it was fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes when that Syrian general came and in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament desecrated the Jewish temple by sacrificing a pig and setting up idolatrous images in the Jewish temple. By the way, the cleansing of the temple and the restoration of the temple to service is the holiday marked by the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. So it, it's, this is all stuff that happened in between the end of Old Testament history and the beginning of New Testament history. But this is what I want you to understand. In the view of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, the abomination of desolation is yet to be fulfilled, right? Right? You can't close the book on the abomination of desolation because of what Antiochus Epiphanes did. Matter of fact, all you can say is this, is that what Antiochus Epiphanes did, it was a foreshadowing fulfillment of the ultimate fulfillment that will come because Jesus makes it very plain that in his day it was yet future. Now, I believe in much the same way The horrific destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was a foreshadowing fulfillment of the Great Tribulation. It was not the Great Tribulation, but it was a foreshadowing fulfillment of it. So now, verse 16. When this abomination of desolation comes... Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Now, believe it or not, now, and we've been going, what, almost 20 minutes now. We've just come up to where we left off last week. But anyway, you understand now, Jesus is just announcing that, that, that this abomination and desolation is such a pivotal sign that on the heels of that, great destruction, great tribulation is going to come, as he's going to mention right now in verse 21, which we turn our attention to now, and he says, because of this coming great tribulation, when you see the abomination and desolation, flee. Now It's very interesting. The Christians in A.D. 70 kept these words of Jesus close to their heart. And when they saw the Romans starting to come into the area around AD 68, they fled Jerusalem. They fled the more populated areas of Judea, and they were spared. The Jewish people did not. And in this foreshadowing fulfillment, as I would call it, in this destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, hundreds of thousands of Jews were cruelly, cruelly killed. Nevertheless, I don't think that that was the fulfillment of the abomination and desolation. And let me explain to you just another reason why. I think I've given you other reasons. Most notably, the great end of the age hasn't happened yet. But secondly, let me just say this. Most people believe that the coming of the Roman troops into Jerusalem, and the carrying of their ensigns, their, their army symbols, you know, that they would carry on a stick, the, the, the carrying of those ensigns into the city and the, into the temple courts, that was the abomination and desolation. Can I tell you something? By the time what they say, the abomination and desolation happened, it was too late for any of the Jews to flee. It was too late. But it will not be too late in the ultimate fulfillment of this, which is yet to come. Described, beginning now at verse 21, For then there will be great tribulation such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now look, I'm going to read that again, because I believe that that is such an important verse in our understanding of this passage. Jesus says, For then following on the abomination of desolation. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now, let me just say this, my friends. To me, this is another reason to take the strong argument that what happened to the Jewish people in A.D. seventy, in the destruction of Jerusalem, and how the Romans laid waste not just to Jerusalem but to the whole area of Judea—that brutal conquering of the Jewish rebellion in A.D. seventy—that that was not the fulfillment of what Jesus spoke of and the abomination and desolation. Because, let me just be very honest with you here: that I don't think you can say was the worst time in all human history. Oh, it was terrible. No doubt. But when we think of the terrible wars and plagues and famines and genocide, history has seen it's a terribly sobering statement. Jesus says, you bring out the worst history has seen. I remember reading some books and listening to some audio lectures talking about the, um, the sweep of Attila the Hun and and uh, other invaders from Asia that worked uh, westward uh, through Europe, and how they laid such waste to cities. How how they would kill millions just because they didn't like cities, and, and the and these Mongol hordes that would sweep from the east, and these areas, and and how they they would come and 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 just do un. Unbelievable destruction. And then we think of genocides in the 20th century. I, I have to say, I find it remarkable that commentators will say that, no, the, the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was the worst time of human history ever seen. I, I find that to be uh, an a unsupported and, and, I don't know, just sort of bold argument to make. You see, but those who believe that the events of Matthew 24 were all or mostly fulfilled in A.D. 70 are in the very unenviable position of arguing that the calamity that came upon Jerusalem at that time was the worst catastrophe of all history. I don't think that that's adequately possible to defend historically. As bad as that catastrophe of A.D. 70 was, there have been subsequent wars and calamities even worse. And this reminds us that the great tribulation, this catastrophe, look at verse 21 again, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, this has not yet been fulfilled. So let's start again, verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be, for wherever the carcasses There the eagles will be gathered together. So Jesus first tells us that on the heels of this great tribulation, excuse me, on the heels of this abomination of desolation following in its wake will come the desolation in the abomination of desolation. And it will be a great tribulation worse than history has ever seen. And in the midst of that, people will be looking for Messiahs. That's why Jesus says, look, here is the Christ. No one should be deceived about the nature of Jesus' coming. It will not be secret or private, but it will be plain as lightning that flashes across the sky. But in the midst of this kind of tribulation, there will be a temptation to look for false Messiahs. False Christs and false prophets will arise, as Jesus said. Make no mistake about it. I have to say, and I'm going to refer to a term now that I'm just going to throw out and I'm not going to explain in greater detail, but but we have an understanding in, in New Testament biblical prophecy, the study of things coming about in the end times, of an event called the rapture. This is when Jesus comes for his church, and it's described very plainly in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now, some people came up with, and I don't know who invented this phrase, I don't know who popularized it. It's never been popular in circles that I've heard, but apparently it's been popular in some circles where they talk about the secret rapture of the church. I don't know where people get such a phrase, because whatever happens with the rapture of the church and this first aspect of the coming of Jesus Christ, it won't be secret. The world will know. It will not be a secret event. The return of Jesus Christ will be, as he says, as lightning that comes from the east and flashes to the west, so, verse 27, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now you should just know something here. I'm going to give you a little bit of theological background for you just to store away or you make a note in your Bible. Where it says in verse 27, the coming of the Son of Man, it uses the ancient Greek word parousa, usually spelled this way in English. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. Now, that has become, in theological circles, a real handle, a real key term to describe what we would say the glorious return of Jesus. It's used only in this chapter in the Gospels. It's used in verse 3, verse 27, verse 37, and verse 39. Though in the epistles... It's used several times of Jesus' return in glory. Its literal meaning is presence. But it was especially used of official visits by high-ranking officials or people. It was also used for divine visitations. And so therefore, many New Testament scholars regard this as the technical term in the New Testament for Jesus' return in glory, the parousa. If you're doing some theological reading, you'll run across that term from time to time. So Jesus says, look, this is how it's going to happen. Abomination, desolation, then this tremendous calamity that he calls the great tribulation will be poured out upon the earth. Don't be deceived. There's going to be a lot of deception in these times. But then finally, he will return in glory. And then he says in verse 28, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. I don't really know what Jesus meant by that. I have yet to find an adequate explanation of that very enigmatic phrase that he uses in verse 28. Probably, and I can say this with some confidence, but not complete certainty, it probably means something like this, when judgment is ripe, it will surely come. But it's a little bit difficult. Because eagles don't really go to carcasses. But then some people say, well, if Jesus said this in Aramaic and not in Greek, which I'm usually not inclined to think, I would think that Jesus said this in Greek and not in Aramaic, but they're saying that the vocabulary didn't make a distinction between like a vulture, you know, a bird of... of, that would go upon dead animals, and another one that would be a bird of prey, such as an eagle says, People confuse. I don't think we can know exactly. I think he's using a proverb, a proverbial expression of his time. But in the context, it probably means, when the judgment is ripe, it will surely come. Now on to verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from the one end of heaven to the other. Now again, I have to say that those people who believe that the events of this chapter happened all or mostly all in A.D. 70, I think that they make a hash of this passage. They refer to the sun and the moon and the stars, uh, celestial powers and this and that, but even that doesn't really seem to fit with what actually happened in A.D. 70. No, I think the most plain meaning is to connect this with the passages in Joel and Revelation and Isaiah, which clearly describe these cosmic disturbances that will happen when the uh, glorious return of Jesus Christ comes. And and listen, some people wonder, well, will, will stars actually fall from the heavens? Will the moon actually appear as blood and these other things? And all I can say is I can assure you of this. If you're standing on planet Earth and looking at him, it will look like that. It will feel like that. That's what you'll say. Now, Jesus isn't speaking as an astronomer here, right? He's not talking in terms of uh, astronomical physics, but he's talking about what it'll feel like when you're on the Earth at that time, and it'll feel like the cosmos is being ripped apart that the stars that once seemed so reliable and so secure, and you always know where you're going because there's the North Star and you can always find your way in the night, right? Those fundamental things will be shaken in the cosmos. And everything will be shaken. And then what will happen in verse 30? Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. It's very interesting because it's difficult to say exactly what this sign is. It seems to precede His return as it is described in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, where Jesus comes back, actually riding a horse, coming with the armies of heaven, coming to interrupt history with all glory. Now, Perhaps this sign is somehow related to incredible cosmic disturbances. Maybe, I mean, people have suggested crazy things. They say, well, the, the, the stars will be shaken up and form in the sign of a cross in the sky. You know, maybe there'll be a big, huge cross and that'll be the sign of the Son of Man. Now, other people point out that this word sign or semion in the Greek language, that is used to translate from the Old Testament the word for a standard or a banner, referring to a signal for gathering together God's people. Now, I don't know exactly what the sign of the Son of Man, but let's just say this is going to be striking. When Jesus returns in glory to the earth, everybody's going to know it. All of history will be changed from that moment on, verse 30. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is the fulfillment of the end, indicated by the sign of the abomination of desolation. And since this has not yet happened, neither has the abomination of desolation. Now again, let me just say this, and I'm not saying this to pick on people who believe differently. Let, Let me just say this, and I said this at the beginning of the last study. When we come to these issues of eschatology or biblical prophecy or what the Bible says about the very end times, there are admittedly some very sharp disagreements among Christians. I mean, we understand that. And there are some people who are just so tired of the disagreements that their approach is to just say, well, who can believe anything? And they become what I call prophetic agnostics. They just don't want to believe anything or take a stand on anything. But listen, I believe that from my interpretive perspective that these passages can be understood and can be effectively taught. I mean, I hope I'm teaching them tonight. But at the same time, I want to have charity towards those who disagree with me. Towards those who see this differently, I don't think they're stupid. I don't think that they're dishonest. I don't think that they, you know, have forsaken the Lord Jesus. I just think they're wrong when they interpret these particular passages. And so... Again, let me just say that those who claim that all or most of the events of Matthew 24 were fulfilled in the Roman conquest of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, these verses put them in a very unenviable position. They often claim that Jesus fulfilled this coming on the clouds of heaven of the Son of Man with power and great glory by coming in judgment against the Jewish people in A.D. 70. I think that's a completely inadequate description. It just doesn't fit what happens here at all. And even some who believe that most of the events of Matthew 24 were fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem understand that this is a stretch too far. Now, verse 32, Jesus is going to speak more regarding the timing of these events. He says, verse 32, Now learn this parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not, but will by no means pass away. First Jesus begins in verse 32, saying us, learn a parable from the fig tree what's he getting at here? I, I think he's just getting at the fact that the fig tree has a regular pattern. When the leaves appear, then summer follows. When you're walking in the street and you see a fig tree and its leaves appear, you know something. You know something about the season. You know that winter's not going to come. You, you you know that it's not going to snow next week because the leaves, oh, look, the leaves of the fig tree, winter's coming. It's going to snow. No, no, no. The leaves on the fig tree appear. You know that summer is coming. The fig tree was a common fruit tree in Israel. It's mentioned many times in the Old Testament, especially as a description of the abundance of the land. Sometimes figs or fig trees are also used as symbols or pictures. In passages like Jeremiah 24 and Hosea chapter 9, figs or fig trees are used as a representation of Israel. However, I've got to tell you, Most Old Testament references to the fig tree use it simply as an example of agricultural blessing and not as some special emblem of the nation or the people of Israel. It seems to me that Jesus' reference here is not so much on the figginess of the fig tree, if I can use such a word, but just on the way that the fig tree follows reliable growth cycles related to the seasons. And I think this is especially evident when this passage is compared with, with Luke chapter 21, which says this, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourself that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, So you also, verse 33, Verse 33, When you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Jesus assured that when these signs appeared, as he foretold, what were the signs? The abomination of desolation, followed by great tribulation, followed by signs in the heavens, when those signs are seen, you know that his return to the earth would follow. When a fig tree buds, There's an inevitable result. You know that summer's near. And fruit is coming in the same way Jesus is saying that when these signs are seen, the coming of Jesus in glory with his church to the world will inevitably follow. And can I say, this is really just as Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. If we would have done what Jesus said way back in verse, what was it, 15, and read and understand about the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet then we would know that Daniel chapter 12, verse 11 says that the end will come 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation. I think that this was a precious assurance that Jesus gave to those unfortunate saints who will remain and be converted during the Great Tribulation that they would be assured that the agonies of the great tribulation will not continue indefinitely, but that they will have an end. I think that's going to be the point of great hope. Now, up to this point, Jesus has given an important outline for understanding end times events. He says, first of all, there will be catastrophes and persecutions, but those in and of themselves are not the signs of the end. There will be a pivotal sign, the abomination of desolation. When the abomination of desolation appears, there will be warnings to Israel to flee after the abomination appears. And on the heels of the abomination of desolation comes great tribulation and cosmic disturbances, and in culmination, Jesus Christ will return in glory to the earth. But we have to look at a very problematic verse. It's problematic for me and my approach to to this chapter of Matthew, chapter 24, where Jesus says, verse 34, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Now, look, let me just read it again. This generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. This statement of Jesus is one of the central reasons why many have looked for all or mostly all of the events in this chapter to have been fulfilled in A.D. 70. They say, look, Jesus said this about A.D. 30. Forty years later, a generation, if you will, A.D. 70, Jesus is clearly connecting the two. Jesus is saying all these things will be fulfilled in the generation that he's speaking to right then in 30 A.D., Yet, as previously argued, to assert this is to greatly stretch the most natural interpretations of the abomination of desolation. It's to greatly stretch the most natural interpretation of the severity of the Great Tribulation. It's to greatly stretch the most natural interpretation of the cosmic signs of the coming of the Son of Man. It's much better to let those passages have their most natural meaning and to fit this promise into the framework. Look, I just think of what somebody might theologically object to in this teaching of mine. They might say, well, no, David, I object Based on verse 34, I think that we have to try to make the abomination desolation and the great tribulation and the cosmic signs. We have to find a way to fit that into the 70 AD because of what Jesus said in verse 34. And I would come to it just from the other viewpoint. I would say, no, because of what Jesus said in uh, the abomination desolation, the great tribulation, the cosmic signs, the glory of his return, all that, we have to figure out what this means in light of that. And I think I might have mentioned this last time. But then I'll just mention it right here again. I think that no matter what interpretive framework you use with Matthew 24, you run into some problems. My interpretive framework has a bit of a problem here at verse 34. But, I'll say it, I like my problems much better than the other problems. Honestly. And that's the way I approach this. I look at this and I say, look, the key to this chapter, the core, the pivot, is not this generational promise that Jesus makes in verse 34. The key, the core, the pivot, it's at verse 15 with the abomination of desolation. So I'm rather letting that speak for itself and be a clear, biblical, natural interpretation and form other things around it rather than trying to form everything around verse 34. Now I say that verse 34 is a bit of a problem for me, but I don't think it's an insurmountable problem. Because you just have to ask yourself, first of all, what generation did Jesus mean? When Jesus says, this generation will by no means pass away, well, I don't think it meant the generation of the disciples because they never saw Jesus return in glory as described in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. In my mind, it's undoubtedly the generation that sees these signs. What Jesus is telling us is that these events and Jesus' return are not on some thousand-year timetable, but that it will all happen fairly rapidly in succession, just as Daniel the prophet told us, a a three-and-a-half-year period after the abomination of desolation. Now, one other thing, an alternate interpretation of this, It has been suggested that the word translated here, generation, could also be translated race. And what Jesus is promising is that this race, the Jewish people, will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. Now, if that interpretation is correct, we would have to say that it is a remarkable promise. Is it not? Is it not? To think that this people that had not had their own homeland for hundreds upon hundreds, almost 2,000 years, they had not had their own homeland, and yet they would survive as a distinct, recognizable, and might I say, influential people on this earth. That is a remarkable promise. Look, I don't know how many Amorites you've rubbed shoulders with lately, right? Or Hittites, or, or any of these other ancient people groups that are just gone. Moabites, Edomites. I, I mean, listen, these peoples are gone to history, and that's just how history works. But Jesus very well could have been promising here in verse 34 that this race of the Jewish people will not pass away despite fierce persecutions brought upon them through the centuries. They will not pass away, and that's a very precious promise. Listen, the, the difficulty with that interpretation is that some of the commentators I read dismiss it with such energy. They they say things like, it's embarrassing to even think that some people would think this could be true. But then I have to be honest with you. I find other commentators that I trust who say, no, this is a very viable interpretation of this. And I have to say that to know the possibilities and the viability of translating this race instead of generation, it's a little bit above my expertise. So I just throw it out to you as what I believe is definitely a possibility. But, but my first interpretation of this would just be simply to say that the generation that sees these signs, they will see the end and they will see it very near. And again, might I remind you one more time that this is nothing more than what Daniel has already told us in Daniel chapter 12. Now, on to verse 36. Jesus is going to speak more about his coming, but now I think of a different approach. Listen, a couple of things you have to understand. First of all, when we come to biblical prophecy, it is common for prophecy in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to do what we might call jump around a bit. It is rarely given to us in one coherent, you start at A and you go to B, to C, to D, to E, all the way through to the letter M or whatever you want to say. There it is, just strictly chronological. No, that speaks to more of a Western Greek mentality, very linear, very logical. No, no, no. The Hebrew mind, which of course the Bible comes to us primarily from the Hebrew mind, especially these prophetic passages, It tends to be more scattered, right? A brilliant image here, a brilliant image there, and sometimes it's difficult to see how they connect chronologically. And so personally, I do not burden myself with a necessity to have a strict chronological timeline through this and other prophetic passages. I understand that they might speak of one event, oh, and then another event that happens before, and then a third event that happens at another point of time, and these kind of things. So now Jesus is going to speak more on his coming but from a different approach verse 36 But of that day and that hour no one knows not even the angels of heaven but my Father only Here Jesus refers back to the original question of Matthew chapter 24 verse 3 What will be the sign of your coming And his answer is somewhat expected. He says, of that day and hour, nobody knows. And to give this idea the strongest emphasis, Jesus claimed that this knowledge was reserved for his father only. If Jesus himself, at least during his earthly ministry, did not know the day and the hour, it emphasizes how foolish it is for any later person to be making certain predictions regarding timing on the prophetic timetable. So Jesus says, no one knows. Listen, based on what he had told us about the abomination of desolation, we might have expected that the exact day and hour could be known. A- after all, Daniel set the day of the Messiah's return as being exactly 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation. Let me say that again. It's in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. You can remember that, twelve eleven, right? Daniel 12, 11 says, that after the abomination and desolation, you can start marking the days off your calendar, 1,290 days, and then the end comes. And you just say, well, then, wait a minute, Jesus, what? How can the day of Jesus' coming both be completely unknown? That's what he's saying right here in verse 36, right? Completely unknown, yet it's certainly unknown. Excuse me, certainly known completely unknown, or certainly known. How can those two be reconciled? Well, just hold that thought in your mind. Let's go on to verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. I have to say, what Jesus here says surprises me again. Because Jesus explains what he means. He says, it's going to be just like the days of Noah. And then he explains what the days of Noah were like. It means life centered around the normal things, eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, I'm going to come back to a world that's business as usual. Perhaps reprobate, but reprobate in the usual ways eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And they did not know, verse 39, and they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Though the people in the days of Noah were warned, judgment eventually came. And to those who had ignored the warnings, it came suddenly and unexpectedly. Now I have to say, here's a dilemma. Jesus, wait a minute, Jesus. Didn't you just tell us that you're going to come back to a world that's experiencing the worst catastrophes that history has ever seen and cosmic disturbances. Didn't you tell us that that's the kind of world you're going to come back to? Now you're telling us that you're going to come back to a world that's whistling and partying and eating and drinking, giving and marriage and business as usual world. Which is it, Jesus? Hold that thought. We'll continue on. Verse 40. Then two men will be in the field One will be taken and the other left. Two men will be grinding at the mill. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now here in verse 40, Jesus points to curious disappearances, a catching away of some at the coming of the Son of Man. And I believe that this is described in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, as what we commonly call, it's not given the word rapture in that particular passage, at least not in the English or in the Greek Bible, it's called that in a Latin translation, but the rapture, the catching away of the church. By the way, taken implies to take someone to be with you It points to salvation, not to judgment. There are some people, again, people that I would respect, teach that this teaches that some people will be taken away and taken to judgment. I don't believe so. I believe this speaks of people being taken away. And the force of the Greek word, uh, for example, the New Testament commentator France uh, regards this as as being uh, a good word for taken, not a bad word. And so Jesus says again, Watch, therefore... For you do not know, verse 42, what hour your Lord is coming. Since the day and hour of this coming are unknowable, Jesus' followers must be on constant guard for his coming. Again, I scratch my head about this. I say, wait a minute. Is Jesus coming at an unexpected hour or at a positively predicted day? Is he coming to a world that's running business as usual, or is he coming to a world that's in worldwide cataclysm? Is he coming to take away his people to meet him in the air, or is he coming with the saints, as he described earlier? I like how William Barclay described one aspect of the difficulty here. I'm quoting now from William Barclay. He says, it is in two sections and they seem to contradict each other. The first seems to indicate that as a man can tell by the signs of nature when summer is on the way, so he can tell by the signs of the world when the second coming is on the way. The second section says quite definitely that no one knows the time of the second coming, not the angels, not even Jesus himself, but only God, and that it will come upon men with the suddenness of a rainstorm out of a blue sky. How do we resolve this? Is Jesus hopelessly contradicting himself? No, not for a moment The dilemma is resolved by seeing that there are actually two second comings, if I could use such a phrase. There are two aspects of the second coming of Christ. One is in the air for his people, for the church, commonly known as the rapture. The other is to the world, coming with the church, commonly known as the parousa or the second coming of Jesus. The supposed contradictions in Matthew chapter 24, and much in the rest of prophecy, are often solved by seeing that there are really references to the two returns of Jesus, two aspects of his second coming. My friends, I, I don't want to get much into it tonight, but let me just mention it briefly, that this is why I believe that the rapture of the church, the taking away of church, this, this, as he described in verse 40, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. What we call the rapture, that this will happen before the great tribulation that Jesus announced. Why, I believe that this taking will happen before the abomination of desolation is ever revealed. Because Jesus described simultaneously two very different kinds of world conditions at his coming. And for both of those world conditions to be fulfilled, not only must there be two aspects to his coming, right? The first a coming for his people, the second a coming with his people, uh, the, the first coming in a time of peace and safety, the second coming in a time of worldwide calamity, Uh, The the first coming when no man knows the day or the hour, the second coming at a definitely defined date, not only must there be these two different aspects of his coming, but they must be separated by some appreciable period of time, enough time for the conditions in the world to radically change. And this is what I believe in what is popularly called the pre-tribulation rapture, which simply means that the rapture, the taking of the church, as Jesus described in verse 40, will happen before the great tribulation, and the abomination and desolation are revealed. Now, verse 45, let's finish up. Oh, verse 44, let me just read this. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We must not escape this emphasis. We must be ready, because His coming for us is without warning. And now Jesus will follow this with the remainder of chapter 24 and into chapter 25 that we'll get into next week with some parables to drive home this point. You know, it's said, and again, our friend John Trapp, the old Puritan commentator, he tells us this, that it was a practice of Julius Caesar never to tell his soldiers at any time when they were going to set out to march or change their position. He would never give them any warning. He wanted them to be ready at any time. And that's exactly how we should be. Now, verse 45, we'll we'll continue now to the end of the chapter. He says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. I surely say to you that he'll make a ruler over all his goods. Jesus told us that we must carry on with diligence while our Lord is gone and we must be that faithful and wise servant who takes care of his master's business while the master's away. And Jesus also promised that we'll be rewarded for our diligence that we show when the master is away. The servants serve the master, but the master knows how to take care of and knows how to reward the servants. And finally now, starting at verse 48. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and in an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him portions with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus warned us of the attitude which says, my master is delaying his coming. We must live in constant anticipation of Jesus' return, and that means being about our business for him now. Look, I would make this argument to you, my friends, that the most dangerous lie is that there is no God, or that there is no hell. Those are not the most dangerous lies. Perhaps the most dangerous and effective lie of Satan is this, there is no hurry. Sure, you can get right with God. Sure, you can get serious about your walk with Him. Just do it later. And as long as it's later, as long as it's tomorrow, as long as it's never today, it will never happen. It is not a small thing to say, Jesus is not coming today, or He will not come for several years because your system of prophecy demands such a thing. We need to be ready for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, look at what he says in verse 49. The conduct of the ear of the ungodly servant. He begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The evil servant who was not ready for the master's return sinned in at least three ways. Number one, he was not about the business that the master left for him. Number two, he fought with and he mistreated his fellow servants. And number three, He gave himself to the pleasures of the world instead of serving his master. My friends, I don't know. Is it too much for me to say that by and large that is a description of the church today? They're not about the business that the master left for them. They are fighting with and mistreating their fellow servants and they're giving themselves to the pleasures of the world instead of serving the master. This is emphasis on constant readiness is a challenge for the Christian today. It can be said that many Christians today are not ready in the same three ways. Everyone who reads this should be greatly impressed by the urgency of Jesus's appeal. Listen, let's be very straightforward with this. You can be a prophetic expert. I talk tonight about a lot of differing interpretations when it comes to biblical prophecy. And there are good Christians who have different understandings of this. Let me say, you can be entirely correct in your prophetic understanding and entirely wrong in your life. The most important thing to come away with from Jesus' or any of the Bible's teaching upon the end of the age in biblical prophecy is not the precise timing of events or order or structure of things. I think those things are important, but those aren't the most important thing. The most important thing to come away with is simply this. Be ready. If you get that wrong, it doesn't matter what else you get right. Be ready for the return of Jesus. And we anticipate it And we say, Lord, make us ready. Let's pray to that end right now. Father, that is our prayer. We think, Lord, and I always think whenever I teach through a passage that has controversial interpretations surrounding it, Lord, I I rejoice to teach it because it seems clear enough to me, Lord, not perhaps perfectly clear, but clear enough. But, Lord, I, I always want to be mindful for my own life and the lives of anybody who hears me. Lord, we need to be ready. And without that readiness, all of our interpretive perfection is hollow. Lord, we want to be faithful servants to you who are about our Father's business, who who treat the other servants of the Lord well, and who know, Lord, how to put the pleasures of the world in a distant perspective to being about your business. Help us, Lord. Help us, Jesus. We want to understand, but Lord, we want our understanding even to be subservient to our readiness for your return. Work that in us, Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen.